Welcome to Heaven Sent and Bent on TalkZone.com, a place to talk about the experiences that we call life. We'll share the sorrow and the joy that makes this earthy existence real and makes us who we are. Now, here's your host, Renee Steelman. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me today, this morning, this Monday morning on Heaven Sent and Bent. I am Renee Steelman, your host, and you are listening to Heaven Sent and, and Bent on TalkZone.com. And you can find this podcast or any of my previous podcasts on my blog, if you don't have an opportunity to listen to the podcast live, uh, my blog is www.heavenandnot.com. And I will rebroadcast this, this show and all of my previous shows are on there so you can find it. And today I am so pleased to be talking with someone who is working in the field of autism. And, you know, a lot of my shows lately, you may have noticed, are centered around the topic of autism. And that's because, you know, autism has touched our family's lives. And it is something that we are very much becoming aware of. And services that uh, my guest has today are just a savior in our family, and I'm sure it's touching other families. And so I wanted to let all of you know about anything that I find out, I want to share with all of you because that's what it's all about. Word of mouth is the best form of advertising, and mothers and families who are going through the trauma of either just finding out that they have an autistic child or they're in the midst of dealing with an autistic child, uh, a lot of times they're resources are limited, their time is limited, and the ability to find out what's out there is overwhelming sometimes. Sometimes you just go into a zone where you can't read another article. You can't listen to someone else that has heard something about heard something about heard something, you know, about a a, a, a cure or a something about a new food that should be eaten or shouldn't be eating. It, you just get into a, a mode where it's just too much. So if there's something out there that works, that lots of families are finding success with, then those are the kinds of things that um, I want to share and I think other people are anxious to hear about. So my guest today is Candace Pogie, and she is the, um, or Pogie, I'm sorry, Candace. she is the case supervisor for a program called the Center for Autism and Related Disorders. And I'm going to ask Candace more about that, but the Portland office is fairly new, so it's a resource that has just recently come to the services of the people in this area and what a life save saver this service is. So, Candace, thanks for joining me this morning. Thank you for having me on. I'm very excited to be here. Well, and you have been a busy lady because how yeah. <laughs> how when did the Portland office open? Um, so I moved up here in January and opened up the office. So we've been here since January um, and we've uh, probably probably about three months. Uh, so probably around March, we actually started providing services uh, okay. in the Portland area. And you not only serve the Portland area, but you serve Southwest Washington as well. Yeah. So we're right now we're providing services in Southwest Washington out of the Portland office. There will eventually be 
um, a Vancouver office as well. Yeah. Okay. Right. And you moved up from, did you, where did you come from to move to Portland? Um, I came up here from Southern California. Okay. And this so is where the card, yeah, the card program originally started in uh, Los Angeles. Is that correct? Yeah. We're, our home office, um, is in uh, Woodland Hill. That was our kind of our starting office. Um, and we have, uh, geez, I think around 50 offices across the nation now. Um, wow. Yeah. And definitely a service that will probably bring many mother, many other offices opening up because, you know, when I think about the fact that your, your, uh, this program has been around for 25 years, but mm-hmm. the amount of children that are being diagnosed, you know, with autism spectrum disorder has increased over the last 25 years. So I'm sure there's a, a need for your services and you probably are just overwhelmed with people wanting. Yeah. You, yeah. It's a, it's pretty much across the board. And I know that there are several other providers in the Portland area and just across the nation and everyone is pretty much experiencing the same thing where we just have an overwhelming number of families that we're trying to get help to um, and provide services for. Right. I think the thing about autism, and you'll have to uh, tell me more about what you find, is that because it is a spectrum disorder, you it's it's not, well, I don't know, it's hard to say, because actually there's a lot of spectrum in a lot of different disabilities. But um, how do you, you have, you don't go in until a child has been officially diagnosed with being, uh, having the autism spectrum disorder, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Okay, so you're not in the process of evaluating or giving families the actual diagnosis. Once they have been officially diagnosed with autism, that's when your services step in. Yeah, so in order to come in and get services, and this is primarily if families are trying to go through um, their insurance provider, because um, in order to get um, services through the insurance provider, they have to have the autism diagnosis, and they have to have the prescription or referral from their primary physician. I see. Um, and so once they have that, then we're able to um, submit for treatment to their insurance provider. If a family okay. was going to pay privately for services, they could come in. They wouldn't necessarily need an autism diagnosis. I mean, we would provide services to anybody that wanted services if they weren't going to go through their insurance provider. The, the issue is, is that the insurance funding agencies require that diagnosis. Well, that makes sense. And yeah. you reach, tell me, you, your age group is, you go all the way up to providing services for people up to age 21, is that correct? Um, we don't have an age limit. We will provide services for adults. We have a whole adult curriculum um, that focuses more on just adaptive living skills, um, social interactions, uh, becoming more independent in terms of their daily life. Um, and so we actually don't have an age limit. We'll work with any age. That's amazing. And what's so good about that is not everyone gets the diagnosis at one or two or three years old. A lot of families are finding that their children are, there's, they know that there's something that's different, but they're not able to put their finger on it. And the child might be 12 or 13 before a diagnosis actually comes in. So to yeah. Th- when, yeah, and when they talk about autism spectrum disorder and you hear the word early intervention, early intervention, early intervention, and then you don't get yeah. the diagnosis until 12, it could be a helpless feeling. Yeah, it really, it really is. And 
we're seeing that pretty much across the nation in terms of families that are getting diagnosis later and later. And I think that's just due to the lack of information that was around, you know, 11, 12, 13 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't quite out there. And the other thing was, is there weren't any services for most in most areas. And so um, there was a lack of diagnosis because there's nothing for them, no sort of treatment for them to receive for it. Um, yes. And so now we're seeing a lot of those older individuals getting diagnosis and um, coming in for uh, treatment. That's amazing. And when you were you a part of, or do you know anything about the decision where and where you know how and when they're going to open up a new office? For example, the decision to open up an office in Portland. It does that come from numbers of autism? Um, people being diagnosed um, or do you know how that's we, determined? You know, it's kind of, it kind of varies. Um, we look at where the need is um, in terms of, you know, how many people are looking for services. Um, at CARD, we do have um, a remote services department. And so, um, which is usually how an office would start is because we have families in an area where there isn't an office looking for services. And so we would provide um, service to them remotely and we would hire local therapist to provide the day-to-day interventions, and the supervisor would then fly out uh, bi-monthly or every three months to do um, in-depth, in-person treatment update and all of that. Um, And so sometimes that's how it would happen is that we get more and more families in that area that want services, and so we'll then look into putting a permanent office there. Um, Another uh, way that an office might come about is if there is a state mandate for services, and so we know that, you know, they're going to be there are going to be a lot of families that are going to be looking for services because the state has then approved um, insurance to provide services for ABA. Um, so that's another thing that might happen that might uh, cause us to open an office in an area. That's that's very good. That's so great that insurance companies are, I, I know, golly, I think it was only eight years ago, that uh, autism was not being covered by a lot of insurance companies or they weren't taking it. Mm-hmm. I, hate to, I hate to say the word taking it seriously, but they weren't recognizing the number of hours or the team that's necessary to treat children that are on the spectrum. And now I think they are really coming on board, which is great if you yeah. have a great insurance company that is going to be doing <laughs> that, which is a whole nother show. We're not even going to get into that. Yeah. <laughs> but you you mentioned ABA therapy, and I know that your philosophy is to provide evidence-based treatment to individuals with autism spectrum disorder and explain to my listeners what applied behavior analysis is and what it means to provide evidence-based treatment to the these little individuals right so aba uh, has a very long history of research and uh, methods that have been you know done again and done again in research studies Um, and it's evolved quite a bit over the last uh, these 20, 20 years, you know, ABA, uh, a lot of times we have families come in that are, you know, have looked up ABA online and are like, well, I don't want that because <laughs> that's a, that, that looks like electric shock treatment or, you know, you're going to sit my kid down and, you know, provide drill after drill after drill. And that's not at all what ABA looks like uh, today. <laughs> um, we do use a lot of the uh, research-based teaching methods, which are you know, discrete trial training where you do sit down and you are practicing the same skill over and over again. Um, but then we also use a lot of other things like natural environment training where we're teaching kids um, in a play setting. We're using things that they want to play with and we're, we're trying to teach them how to gain access to 
um, the toys that they want or the items that they want or how to get attention from their parents um, instead of, you know, engaging in a tantrum or, um, you know, crying to get attention. We'll teach them an appropriate way to get that. And um, so there's lots of different ways to use ABA. Um, and a lot of times we get parents in that think that it's, it's very uh, strict, it's very, uh, uh, what is it, regimented. Uh, you know, we're going to sit for 30 minutes and practice the same thing over and over again. And that's kind of not at all what it looks like anymore. There are moments where we will sit down and work on a skill, but it's it's not, uh, I wouldn't say it's not like a very regimented um, treatment anymore. It's very flexible. We kind of go with what the client's needs are. So whether that kid learns better in a natural environment or if they learn better in a very structured environment, um, we kind of take all of those aspects into account when we are designing a treatment plan for any individual that and that's what's that's what's so important is uh, the downside of modern technology is I think it has made it very difficult for any kind of a new program or a new invention or even people starting out on a new job. People aren't allowed to fail anymore. They can't try something and then go back, you know, like the Wright brothers inventing the airplane. They had to fail so many times before they got it right. So, and people aren't allowed to do that because the minute it's something fails, it's on the internet and everyone's clicking onto it and no one can be successful the first time. So you're right. People may look past on 25 years, what was ABA therapy 25 years ago and go, wow, uh, did we move to Germany? What's going on here? But, (laughs) I'm not realizing that things have, you know, they learned. You learned that, that, you know, that Dr. uh, How do you pronounce Dr. uh, Doreen's last name? That's a, okay, that's a hard one. You know, when she founded this, yeah. yeah, when she founded the program, she saw success and, and wanted this, you know, to be able to affect as many children as she could. But it's a learning process. And you, what you do now is not what you did 25 years ago. And it is Working, that's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're so, seeing a lot of success uh, across the board with any individual. It's, it's very uh, exciting. It's so exciting. And parents who have children that are on the spectrum are willing to take whatever success they can get. And children, because it is a spectrum disorder, so what one what is considered success for one child would be considered nothing for another child but you know anyone that's around these children recognize and they can see when there's been something that's wasn't working before that is working now i like what you said about the case management talk about i think you guys are amazing as far as staying on top of each case and working with the parents, talk about how you do that. So the way it's kind of structured is we have um, every individual is assigned a supervisor, um, and then they have a team of therapists, um, depending on, you know, how much treatment they're receiving, be it 15 hours a week or 40 hours a week, is going to determine how many therapists are on their team. Um, and so at CARD, we have uh, bi-monthly clinic meetings where the whole team gets together and um, with the individual there and the family. And we go through all of the lessons. We make updates. We make sure, you know, progress is being made. If there isn't any progress being made, we um, assess what needs to be changed. You know, we make updates. Um, and then we also, um, we have ongoing parent training. And so every month so the, the supervisor meets with the parents and we go over specific goals, you know, what do the parents want to achieve, um, how can we best support them. 
um, in their journey. Um, and uh, we do, we very much want the parents included in session. And so as much as they're available, we do like to have them participate um, and either implement lessons or they can observe and kind of see what we're doing. Um, and we slowly kind of increase uh, their amount of involvement. We want them to be able to do what we do outside of session. So, um, you know, the parents are the ones that are, you know, there with them 100% of the time. And so we want to make sure that they feel comfortable doing everything that we do while we're not there. And so that's kind of our main goal. And all of this is to help kind of support the entire family, not just the individual um, in their in their journey with, you know, autism. And everyone's journey is different. Um, so we very much keep that in mind and make sure we're doing our best to make sure everyone's supported. And I think that it's it's important. Talk a little bit about when you assess the needs of a child and you determine how many hours a week that that child needs. This is, I think, people who have had any kind of therapy in their life or have taken children for therapy, the normal therapy is, look, for example, if you have a child that has had occupational therapy or physical therapy, you as a parent go to the location or even if you had a physical therapist come to your house, then you sit back and the therapist does their thing. And a lot of times your parents will be out in a waiting room or out in their car while the child is going through physical therapy or some kind of speech therapy or something like that. But in the case of this, if Mm -hmm. in some places you actually have locations where you can bring the child to a school Mm -hmm. or something, but that's not the norm. So most of the therapy is done in the home. Is that right? Um, It is. Is You know, it's an age thing. Is it a related? Is it an age Thing it's that dependent that. on what the what the needs of the individual are. Um, in Portland, because we're a new office, we don't have the center yet. We are currently working on that, and hopefully, fingers crossed, it'll be up and running by the first of the year. Um, and but we are moving towards the center-based kind of model. But again, it's very individualized. So if we have a, a an individual that you know everything that needs to be worked on is stuff that requires being in the home setting. So you know maybe it's behaviors or you know, skills that only happen in the home setting when mom or dad is present. So that's where we're going to need to work on those things. Um, it's not going to help if we are working on it only in the center because that's not where those things are occurring. Um, but it's very individualized. You know, we do um, like to have uh, sessions at the center because, one, it allows for more control of the environment. Um, you know, we're able to work on skills that might be more difficult to work on at home um, and then generalize them to the home setting later on. Um, vice versa, you know, if we do have, you know, a 16, 17 year old, you know, most of the time they're not going to want to come to the center because there's a lot of little kids there. Um, Mm. we do work on trying to have an appropriate, uh, setting for those older kids. But for the most part, as they get older, there's more need for it to be, for sessions to be done at home or in the community, whether it's learning how to ride the bus or learning how to go order food, you know, at a restaurant or, um, things like going grocery shopping, you know, a lot of times as, as individuals get older, those are the types of skills we end up working on. Um, right. And so it, it varies greatly dependent on the individual and what they need. And that's so important. I like how you pointed out that uh, because we need to remember that children, no matter what their uh, what issue they're going through, what, uh, whatever the disability is. Children are still children, even if they have some kind of a disability of some kind. And so 
when you talk about children who might be, they might get along very well in school, but at home is where they're having the problems. And you see that in the you know neurotypical child that they get along so well at school or they get along so well with the babysitter, but they know how to push mom's buttons and they're going to push them as hard as they can. And yep. so I like that. I like that you go to where the problem is and whatever the setting is that where the issues are coming up, that's where we'll work with the child. That's excellent. Yeah. We see the most success when, you know, you work on those things in that setting. Um, again, sometimes, you know, sometimes an issue is too difficult to work on initially in that setting, and we need to work on it outside of that setting, you know, practice it a little bit, and then target it in that actual environment where they already have, you know, those coping skills or we've worked on the emotional regulation to deal with that situation as it happens. And so sometimes we'll work on things that way where, you know, we're going to practice it and, you know, at the center, we're going to you know run through it in a hypothetical scenario, and then after we feel that they're ready, we'll then move it to the actual scenario and target it as it happens, and hope you know be there to support them in that setting. Um, and so it varies greatly dependent on you know what they need. That's so important. And talk a little bit about I don't know how much you can get into like the neuropsychology, but talk a little bit about these. One of the I know one of the Big alerts for a lot of families are when their children don't speak. They're, they're, they expect them to be speaking at a certain age, and pretty soon you have a two-year-old that doesn't say mama, doesn't say dada, they don't say anything. And so that's when you know red flags start going off and people become really nervous and they start going in for the evaluations and things. How does the ABA therapy reroute that brain to start understanding how language works. Can you talk about that? Um, the, you know, in terms of rerouting brain paths and stuff, that's a little out of my scope. Um, I do know, you know, when we try to teach, um, you know, the individuals to talk and to request things, we take a very functional approach um, to them learning. And so, you know, we use things that they want, things that they really desire, their preferred items or activities, and we, you know, get them to give us some sort of uh, vocalization for those things. And we use a proce- uh, teaching procedure called shaping, um, where we'll start with something very small. So maybe, you know, right now we're not seeing any sort of uh, vocalizations from this uh, child. And, you know, what we're going to aim for is, you know, they love, you know, they love their favorite toy, Mickey Mouse. And so... What we're going to aim for is, you know, they want Mickey Mouse and we'll give it to them when they give us any sound. And so mm. we'll start getting them to just make any sound and they, they get their favorite toy. Um, once that's very consistent, we then kind of shape it towards, okay, let's, what sound are they saying consistently and let's pair that with Mickey Mouse, you know? And so we, we'll slowly shape it to where we're getting more and more and more of a sound and then we start to shape it towards more and more and more of the appropriate word for that item. Um, and we see a lot of success using a very functional approach. So things that they want, things that they need. And then once that's down, then we can start to kind of generalize it to other things and to where they're just kind of labeling things as they see. You know, we talk a lot during session. We want to make sure we're giving lots of examples of appropriate language and what they could be saying. And so we, you know, then move towards what we call tacting, which is essentially labeling. Um, and so having them tacked on all of the stuff in their environment, like, what's this? It's a cat. It's a dog. You know, and then we move towards, oh, the dog is eating, the dog is jumping. Um, and so starting with a very functional-based approach um, is has been seen to be very uh, successful. 
I I have definitely seen it be successful in our own family. It's so true. Do you see? And as you're as you're talking about this therapy, it's it's so it's one of the things I want to point out is that is typical behavior for a parent and a child that parents I don't think even recognize that they're teaching their children or children are learning language that way. We take that kind of stuff for granted. But then when you have a child whose brain is not processing everything the same way, then those things become specific. And it's amazing how what we take for granted as reward for something successful. For example, a child starts to say mama or dada and we're like clapping and oh my gosh, you're so great. And so they go, oh, that was fun. Let's whatever. What's another word I can start picking up because you give them that reward. And so these, these guys, for some reason, that brain isn't working that way. And the frustration that do you see a lot of behavior with uh, ASD kids is just simply from frustration of not being able to communicate Definitely. their needs and it's, wants. Uh, a great majority of any, you know, behaviors or, you know, kind of meltdowns is generally, it's a lot of it is communication and having that inability um, to get their, their needs met or their point across. It can be, you know, imagine if you weren't able to, tell someone you didn't like that or you don't want that or that's what I'm asking for and you keep giving me 700 other things, it can be mm-hmm. very frustrating for them and uh, it's a it's a very, uh, it's, it's exciting when you get to see that moment of, oh, this is what I need to say and then they understand, you know, and so helping them reach that is, is very uh, rewarding. So rewarding and such a great example because I know when my daughter lived in Spain, I had, I have traveled a little bit and, and I lived in Japan for a couple of years and English is very prevalent in Japan. All of the signs would have kanji and then they would also have English. And a lot of people really wanted to practice their English with you. So you could get, you could get along through Japan, most of the bigger cities anyway, really easily, even if you didn't speak a word of Japanese. And, you know, then some of the other countries were the same way. But we went into Spain and, you know, English was not something that was really relished for a long time because of the way their government was set up. So there wasn't English on any of the signs. And all of a sudden, I'm grocery shopping with my daughter, and I'm looking at all of these spices that I wanted to buy and even simple groceries, and nothing was in English. And it was so... It took so much effort to translate, to ask someone to that you just you just want to go home. I just want to go home. I'm going to eat noodles and ketchup for until I can go home. And so, yeah, times that by a thousand where every single need that you have, no, you don't understand and no money. No one understands you. Yeah. And. I can't even imagine. So you know, when when they talk when you talk about recovery, when children get sick or children have a problem, the first thing parents want to do is fix it and cure it. And you do talk a lot about recovery and CARD is a recovery program, but talk about how you use the word recovery. Right. And so recovery is something that Dr. Doreen um, believes in a great deal and it's kind of when we use the term recovery, it's, I mean, we've had, you know, uh, individuals come in with a diagnosis and what it means is they leave the program without one. So uh, they don't, they don't meet those 
kind of markers anymore. So like they were reassessed and they no longer meet those requirements in terms of having the social deficit, the language deficit, the um, cognitive deficit. They don't have, um, they don't meet all of the requirements to have that diagnosis anymore. It doesn't mean that, you know, they have absolutely no autism at all. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because I've, I've, I've personally worked on a few um, cases where the child no longer has a diagnosis of autism. And it's very rewarding, but it's also, you know, having that conversation with the family because, you know, they're, they're still going to have, there's still going to be things that need to be worked on. You know, it's not, um, you know, that they no longer have this, uh, this autism at all. It's, you know, they're going to have, you know, things that they need to have done a certain way. They're going to have times where they might not understand something and it needs to be explained to them a certain way. You know, they might have, um, very limited interest and that's okay. I mean, Right. Uh, everyone has those types of things. You know, I have days right. where I don't want to do certain things. Um, right. And that's okay. But the, in terms right. of using the term recovery, it just means that they no longer qualify for that diagnosis of autism. Um, and they're able to live a functional and independent life for the most part. And they're able to start acquiring skills, um, you know, in a natural environment. They're able to pick up things and learn them without being specifically taught. Um, right. And so that's kind of what we mean in terms of recovery. And, you know, we look very much to just maximize every child's potential. Every child's potential is different in, in every right. case. So, Right. You know. And I think it's it's one of those things that a human, uh, you know, we always want to know why something happened. Then we want to know how we're going to fix it. And we want to guarantee that everything is going to be happy and we're all going to live happily ever after. And mm-hmm. What I see is that, like you were talking about, people who had, let's say, a compulsive nature, they liked everything really clean. They didn't want anyone to eat in their car. They organized their dresser in a certain way. We used to, we would laugh about that. We would say, oh, that guy's a clean freak or that guy, boy, don't try to eat in his car. He'll go, you know, he'll go off on you if you, if you eat one right. thing in his car. And those kind of things were just acknowledged as a quirk or that person's personality, but they were able to function and get along with mm-hmm. people. And so even people who were very, oh, we used to call them bookworms or we used to call them um, introverted. They didn't really like to be around crowds. They preferred to be by themselves, but they were still functioning. And mm-hmm. what I see with the autism is that the, whatever whatever has happened in the last 25 or 30 years that has clicked that quirkiness into a disorder. And mm-hmm. so what you're doing is, like you say, helping people to be able to function and they might still have that quirkiness where they want to organize their watch and their glasses and their change from their pocket and don't touch Mm -hmm. it. That's okay. People Mm -hmm. get along really well with that, but we have to remember what recovery really means. And to have a child go from being diagnosed with autism and then have them tested again and being tested in the average range uh, is, would be, I would chalk that up as a recovery if I was a parent for sure. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Well, and definitely. I also talk a little bit about that this, as I mentioned earlier, this is a big, huge commitment for parents. This mm-hmm. is not drop your child off for gymnastics, pick them back up again in an hour. Uh, this is a huge commitment for parents. Talk a little bit about what parents 
are willing to do and are doing to get this help and right. this therapy. Right. And I mean, starting ABA therapy is, it's a big change and it's a big, it's a big undertaking, you know, especially if, you know, your child is getting a 40 hour a week program. Um, you know, it requires a lot of participation from parents. It requires a lot of, you know, just time and energy because what, well, you know, we come in and, you know, we provide the therapy and yes, you know, the parents don't need to be present for a hundred percent of the time, but we do want you to be there for, you know, part of the time to learn and to see what we're doing because when we're not there, the follow through has to be from the family. And the cases where we see the most success are the cases where the parents are heavily involved. They're participating in session. They're, you know, implementing the strategies that we're giving them during session outside of session when we're not there, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we see the most success on those cases where the parents are heavily involved. They're present, you know, they're, implementing everything that we're, we're teaching them. And that's kind of our goal is to make you, make the parents the therapist. We want to mm-hmm. teach you everything we know so that way it's easier for you to communicate with your child, to understand your child, to interact with your child. That's, that's our goal, you know, and we want you guys to feel comfortable in that situation. And, you know, we want you to know, okay, I'm going to go to the store and Tommy's going to have, you know, has a meltdown. We want parents to feel confident and comfortable implementing those strategies out in the community so that way you can live a daily life. You can, you know, go to the mall and do all of those things and know that if something does happen, I know how to handle it. And mm-hmm. so parent involvement and just the commitment from parents is is probably the most important thing when it comes to ABA therapy, definitely. Exactly. And I think I don't know if people really understand when you say 40, <clears throat> excuse me, 40 hours of therapy, that's like eight hours a day for, for, that's your work week. That's your work week. So when you talk about a working mother, if you have a a mother that has to, that is in the home because that child is getting 40 hours of therapy, that means that child is getting eight hours of therapy all day long. And like you say, that parent has to be there to interact, to watch, to see what's going on. And that's a huge commitment. But what, any type of something, anything that's hard, whether it's an exercise program or a, you know, eating program or therapy, anything that's hard, it's hard. And you have, mm-hmm. and if you want the results, you have to be willing to do the hard stuff. And mm-hmm. so all of these wonderful, wonderful, amazing parents are saying, I will do this. I will do mm-hmm. this to get my child to Definitely. be a successful yeah, we- and independent adult. Right. And, you know, and every, not every family is able to have a stay-at-home parent, you know, and so we definitely, right. we definitely take that into consideration and we want to make sure that we can accommodate all types of family structures. And so a lot of times, right. you know, we'll have families that might have four or five hours of therapy in the afternoons, uh, you know, Monday through Friday. Mm-hmm. And then we do a lot, a bulk of, you know, the therapy hours on the weekend, on Saturday and Sunday, so both parents can be present and they're able to see what goes on and participate in sessions. And so, you know, we do, we are able to do like Saturdays and Sundays. And sometimes that's the majority of the hours is Saturday and Sunday because parents have to work mm-hmm. and parents have, you know, other obligations and or other kids right. that, you know, need to be taken to soccer practice and need to be taken to recital. And, you know, so we're able to work around all of those types of things and make sure that we're able to provide 
the appropriate structure for every family because every family is different. And, you know, like I said, not every family is able to have a stay-at-home parent. um, We definitely try to take that into account. And, you know, I've had some families where because parents work, you know, we have sessions at the center and, uh, you know, then we also do a late afternoon evening session so that way mom or dad can be there. Um, and then we have Saturday and Sunday sessions, you know, so it is, it is flexible. And, you know, the main, main priority is one that the child's receiving their therapy and two, that the parents are able to participate in most of the sessions. And, you know, we do our best to make sure that happens. That's so excellent. That is so excellent because you're absolutely right. And I think one of the things that you pointed out is so important is that most of these children have brothers and sisters. And I remember a few weeks ago, I talked with a gentleman who, whose son was not officially diagnosed until he was 12, but, and this was back in the 90s where this was still an early thing. And they had three children all together, but he said he remembered as a father the frustration of having one child take 90% of the energy out of that family. And the, then you have, so you have not only an, an increased amount of energy that's necessary, but then you also have an increased amount of guilt because you're not giving the other children the attention that you think that they need. So right. I love that your program works with the families to find out what's best so that the parents can take the other children. The other children have concerts and like you say, soccer practice and other things that they have to go to as well. Mm-hmm. So definitely. And that's that, it's something that we see in a lot of families that have siblings is, you know, we are coming in for therapy and siblings, you know, they want to participate too, or they don't understand, you know, why Johnny has to have all these people come in. Why does Johnny get all this attention? And that's not fair. And, you know, so a lot of times we'll make sure parents know, you know what, you know, what, let's have a session at the center and you can drop Johnny off and then you can take the other siblings out to go get ice cream or to go do something uh-huh. fun because we want to make sure that there isn't that kind of this discord between siblings or, you know, the misunderstanding. We want to make sure that the family is a, is a cohesive unit and they're working together and, you know, all the kids get to have attention from mom and dad and, you know, they don't feel left out. And so it's very important. Exactly. And we try our best to make sure that that's happening as well. That's so important. And so I, I'm so glad that you're flexible like that. That's amazing. So you just opened up your office not even quite a year ago in Portland, and you are working to possibly open up an office in Vancouver. And But you are also opening up a center in Portland, but that's not open yet. Is that correct? Right. It is going to be um, – We're right now we're working on ironing out the details. Um, but, yeah, we are hoping to have – the center up and running by the first of the year. That's our goal. Um, and that'll then be the main office here in Portland um, once okay. we have the center. And then when you, when you say the center, it's not, is it a school or, or is it a therapy center? How would you describe it? So initially it's going to be a therapy center. We are looking at potentially doing a card academy, which would then be also a school. And it would be where mm-hmm. it would come out of the same place. But yeah. It'll, it, we're hoping to eventually have a card academy. I've had quite a few requests for a card academy here in Portland. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's our that's and, our aim is to have a card academy here. And if you in the other card academies that are throughout the United States, what is the age range for children to attend those schools? Um, we are open from we op- we're open to anyone K through twelve. Um, right now, I think in our card academies that we have. 
Um, it's generally uh, kindergarten to fifth grade is um, kind of what we have right now. But I think um, here in Portland, I've had a lot of requests for that uh, middle school age. <laughs> oh, boy. So, tell me. Tell well, me. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. I mean, we're I'm I'm really excited and, and hope that we can get a card academy up here and running for K through 12. I think that would be amazing. And uh, hopefully we can have that done by the ready to go, hopefully by the end of start of next school year. That would be amazing. Wow, that would be amazing. And you are so right. I don't I think that parents of neurotypical children, everyone can agree that middle school is insane. And oh, yeah. that that the absolute hardest time for a child is middle school. And even something as simple as I have I remember there was one year where they were building a new high school in my community. And so all of the children from all of the elementary schools went to two different middle schools, but then they would all eventually end up at the same high school. Well, they were now building a new middle school and a new high school. And so children that my daughter had gone all through middle school with and all through elementary school suddenly were going to be at a totally different high school, and she was going to be starting all over again with zero friends. And it was traumatic. And she obviously was able to cope because she had the coping skills and and she was able to fluctuate and do the things that neurotypical people are able to do. But to go from, I don't think people understand, to go from one teacher, you know, Mrs. Smith, I love Mrs. Smith, she's your teacher, and, and everybody would go to assemblies as a class, and everything was done as a class, and your Halloween party was in your class, and then suddenly, bam, you're, yep. you're 12, here's your locker, learn this combination, you're going to have five different classes and five different teachers with five different teaching skills and, uh, you know, different ways that they teach. And mm-hmm. that's hard enough for a neurotypical child. It is a disaster for children that have any kind of learning disabilities or, yeah. or any kind of problems, even something as simple as attention deficit. It's like, I need consistency. I need structure. There is no structure in what you just told me, you know? Yeah. So... <laughs> Boy, it is so, so important to get these kids and to see success. I think that's what's so important is they don't, kids don't see success when they are constantly being told you didn't do that right. You didn't do that right. You didn't do that right. And their brains are just like, I don't even know what you're talking about. So I'm, I'll support you. Whatever we need to do as a community, let us know. You're not a nonprofit though. You're not a nonprofit. So it's not something as simple as, getting funds together or anything like that is is that correct or right. how do you work yeah yeah so it's that's just a, a, that's get, which i like but that's a good thing i mean that's 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 a good thing as well but there there's going to be i feel like more of a need as like i often say of one out of 68 children being diagnosed with being on the spectrum that means you're going to have one out of 68 seventh graders and eighth graders that aren't going to fit into the typical american school yeah. system way it, the way it works right now. So, do you do you model the card program after things that you've seen that work in other places and then that that we as Americans that that's um, not typical for us but it's typical in other countries? Um no, we have our, our, our we kind of over the 
last 25 years have kind of pieced together our own kind of program. Um, we have our, we've built out an entire curriculum. Um, it's called Skills. Um, and it's actually available yeah. for, uh, families that are out, can't access services, families that are, you know, we have quite a few families in the Midwest that purchase skills to use on their own to teach their child skills. Um, and so we have, we've built out this entire online curriculum that we use. And it's, uh, what we base our entire program on now. That's, I was gonna, I'm glad you brought that up. I wanted you to talk a little bit about your, your outpatient services and is skills underneath that, the specialized outpatient services, or is that two um, separate programs? I think it's two separate programs. Skills is our online curriculum and it's what we use. Okay. Every individual that comes in has a skills account. Um, we put their entire program in there, all of their lessons, all of their behavior support plans. Um, and we're able to update them and track data um, for uh, <clears throat> individuals that get services through CARD and use skills. All of our therapists have iPads, and so all of the data that they take is immediately uh, uploaded to the skills site. And so you're able to see in real time um, what <clears throat> what's happening, what the progress is, if they're you know making improvements, um, and what they're currently working on, which is also great because we're able to share that with other providers that work with a with an individual. So say they have a SLP or an OT or, you know, and a developmental pediatrician um, or a clinical psych that's working with them as well. We're able to, with a parent's approval, share that access to them and they're able to see what we're working on, you know, where the uh, issues are, what kind of, what their behavior support plans are, you know, so they know what we're doing and they're able to implement those things as well during their sessions with the child. That's so amazing that the, I don't, people, I, I see this a lot on Facebook, but people need to really look at the iPad as not the evil thing that your child wants to play Minecraft on all day, but <laughs> such an amazing teaching tool. And Minecraft is okay and is really a savior for a lot of these kids that are on the spectrum. It's, I don't know who, I don't know whether that was in the cards when the person who invented Minecraft was, but for some reason it's a very, it's a game that can be used for learning and it's a, it's an excellent tool, but those iPads are a absolute savior for, like you say, just being able to get immediate, uh, feedback on programs that you're doing and also working with the kids because they like yeah. that. It's mm-hmm. amazing. It's so a, then talk a little bit more about the outpatient services, the, the, uh, Challenging behavior clinics, the feeding clinics. I mean, talk about the feeding clinics. That's a huge thing for parents. Right. And the, yeah, I'm not sure if we do those specifically anymore. We more tailor those and bring them in to play for clients as they come up. Um, mm. And so we address, um, so say we have an individual that comes in and they have, you know, severe behaviors. There, our immediate focus is handling those behaviors. And so we put together behavior support plans for those and implement them with the team and teach them to the parents. And the same thing with the feeding. Um, we usually, feeding is very difficult uh, uh, skill and lesson to work on. And so generally if we have an individual come in that has a feeding issue, it's not something we work on immediately because we need to have a lot of rapport built and they need to trust us and, and know us um, enough to let us work on feeding. Um, I've had quite a few clients that, you know, only want to eat peanut butter and jelly, and that's the only thing they'll eat, and that's it. (laughs) 
Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And so working on those feeding skills generally takes a lot of trust because it's something that's very upsetting, um, usually brings out a lot of tantrum behavior and sometimes even aggression because we're having them try something they don't want to try and eating is very, very tricky. Um, and so if that's, that is an issue, we will work on it. Um, usually two to three months into a program, we start working on the feeding issues. Um, and we take very, very small steps. You know, we start with them presenting a new food and having them just touch the food, and that's all they have to do. They just have to touch it, and then they get to have the food that they want. Um, and then, you know, we work on them then picking up the food, and then after they pick it up, they get to have the food that they want, you know, and then we work on them just bringing it up to their mouth. They don't have to touch it or, any, you know, taste it or anything. And then once they do that, they get to have the food that they want, and then we work on them just kind of sticking their tongue out and tasting it a little bit, and then they get to... Um, have what they want and you know we slowly build into it to where they're taking an actual bite you know and then we build on the number of bites that they have to take and it generally takes quite some time sometimes it doesn't sometimes you know we're able to move through it really fast and just breaking it down like that the you know the child understands oh i just have to try this and then i get to move on you know and sometimes Mm -hmm. it doesn't sometimes it does take a long time to work on those feeding issues um but yeah right right and I think it's so important to get the word out to all of the um, grandmothers out there and let them know that the old saying, if they get hungry enough, they'll eat it, is not true. And there there are children that would literally starve to death if they didn't have their Petridge Farm fishies. And I do think that Petridge Farm should be donating hundreds and thousands of dollars to any autism <laughs> because I don't know why what it is about those little orange fishies, but... A lot of the kids that I've seen, that is their food choice, and they would live on fishies if they could. It's so, <laughs> and don't you don't you see a similarity? It's like, what is it about French fries, fishies, and chicken nuggets that right. the kids are willing to go with? And I mean, why is it autism? Like, oh, my child will only eat broccoli. I don't know. I can't get him to eat anything else but broccoli and carrots. You know, but it seems to be those. I don't know. That probably says something about uh, no taste. Right. People, those foods have no taste and no flavor, no texture. That means none of us should be eating those things. Probably. But it's, yeah, it's definitely, uh, I think, fortunately, the word is getting out to all grandmothers, yeah, that it's not a discipline issue. It's not, you know, bad parenting. We actually have some things that we're, we're working on and, and there is hope. So, Candace, tell tell everyone out there the best way to find out more about card services. Uh, the best way would be to go on our site. Um, we have a lot of information on there. We have a lot of links to other, um, a lot of our partners. We partner with um, the Institute for Behavioral Training. Um, and on that site, you can find a link on the card website and IBT is something that I think a lot of parents would benefit from. Um, there's a lot of just videos on there that cater to just parents. Um, they're, you know, about how to have a successful trip to the doctor's office, how to have, you know, uh, a successful uh, holiday with my family here, you know, or why is my why is my child doing that? How do I get my child to ask me for things? There are tons and tons of, of videos on the Institute for Behavioral Training that parents can access. Um, they don't have to be a card family. You, anybody anywhere can access them. Um, and so that's one really great resource. Um, another great resource is um, Act Today, which is our nonprofit partner, um, and they do quarterly grants for families. All you have to do is apply, and um, they do a quarterly grant of up to, I 
think it's $5,000. Um, and families can use that towards anything for the child. Um, wow. Sorry, there's a... Um, yeah, and so Act Today is huge. There's a lot of information on there. Um, another great resource is our um, broadcast that's put on by um, Shannon Penrod. It's called um, Autism Live. And I think she does the, the broadcast two or three times a week. And you can find a link to that off of the card website as well. And, you know, she has speakers come on just kind of like your show. Um, mm-hmm. Dr. Doreen's on there once a week to answer live questions from anybody watching. Um, and she does a lot of parent stuff, lots of different trainings. And that she does that broadcast, I think, two or three times a week. And so that's another great resource for families that want more information. Um, but, yeah, I think that's That's, that's about excellent. It. Yeah, if you just Google CARD, and it's, you know, capitalized because it is a, an acronym for Center for Autism and Related Disorders. So, um, but you'll, you'll find the website and you can, there is a lot of, a lot of really good links and resources on there. And, and I know that's what I, I did with, with, uh, our grandson as I just typed in ABA therapy help, you know. <laughs> and, and another, uh, another good resource if families are just kind of wondering, you know, what ABA looks like now. Um, a great way to kind of get an idea is to check out the A word. And it's a YouTube broadcast of a family that did ABA therapy with their, I think he was two or three when he started. And they kind of documented weekly and they did a broadcast weekly. Um, and the family actually received services through cards. So kind of what you're seeing um, through that uh, show, the, the A word on YouTube is kind of what therapy looks like in terms of ABA and oh, cards. Excellent. Oh, that's excellent. I love that. A good use for YouTube. See, there's, it is possible. <laughs> that's, that's great. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day. And, and I hope that this has, you know, helped some people, uh, get some information that they might be looking for. It's definitely a helpless feeling, I know. Uh, and, but once you find out that there are, there is help, then it seems like the floodgates open. If you can just get your little finger in the door, you will find people like you that are that are just going to turn you on to the other things that you need. Which is so so grateful that we live in this country and we have these these kind of services for families. Have a Definitely. great day, Candace. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed being able to be on here with you. Thank you. All right. Bye bye. That is great. And I would really I'm going to get on the uh, YouTube and look that a word up that uh, Candace mentioned, because I think if you could see the uh, ABA therapy, you would be astonished. And Candace is, um, you know, not able to talk about individual cases, uh, obviously, for legal reasons and things like that. But I, as a grandmother, will tell you that I have seen amazing results from just the short amount of ABA therapy that my grandson has uh, been able to take. And he has... Uh, my daughter, oh my gosh, if you want a Kleenex, a Kodak cry moment, my daughter put a video, uh, sent us a video of saying to her three-year-old, um, good night, I love you, and for him to say, I love you, mommy, we, that is something that she didn't hear before, and only after a few weeks of ABA therapy, he was able to say that, and that's the kind of thing that we as parents of neurotypical children take for granted, and so reach out, you know, be a friend to your neighbors, if you have a friend uh, a coworker, a family member that you know is struggling with a child that has autism, 
they need respite. They need a day off. They need a, a free moment to be able to take a bath, to run to the grocery store and slowly walk through the aisles uh, in a zombie state. But just that freedom, they need that. So thank you so much for joining me today. Candace was a great guest, and I hope that you all were turned on to some information that will be very helpful for all of you. CARD, wonderful program, ABA therapy, look for it, find it in your community. Have a great week, and we'll talk again next Monday. Bye-bye. 